The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? Welcome back to Cancelled Too Soon, the, the podcast where we review TV shows that lasted only one season or less. Now, well, now you have to come up with like a spooky name for yourself. I'm William Bibiani. The elongated A makes it makes makes it scary. Uh, I see. Yeah, it makes you because you're you're groaning. Are you underneath your funerary shroud? Yes, I am here in the corner mm. in my shroud. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I contribute to Slash Film. Uh, when I when I said spooky name, I thought you were going to do like you know like the Twitter handles that people do. Oh yeah, right. this year I am. I- real bibs like ah real monsters uh, yeah i think i've done the bibs a duke uh before in the past uh the incredibly yeah. strange bibs stopped living became mixed up zombies that kind of thing uh yeah. this year i'm just uh whitney seibold nine bitter flesh which is the subtitle of witchcraft nine yeah which uh that is a one is... percenter my friend oh yeah one yeah, yeah. no one's gonna, gonna get, get that. that one well one percent um, anyway, but that one percent there, uh, there. I'm going to have that one percent in the palm of my. They're going to love you. They're never going to unfollow you on social media. Hey, everybody! This is canceled too soon. Uh, we this is a show we used to do weekly, and now it comes back uh, on special occasions. And here we are. It's very special. It's very exciting. It is an event we like to call Scary Toba, which is the scariest of all Tobers. Uh, uh, yeah, every October we like to do, uh, canceled horror shows and there are way more than you might think. Yes. Uh, yes just indeed. like anything we do on canceled too soon. I, I'm glad we get to come back to this occasionally. I do love canceled too soon. And, uh, it was our first real passion boy, boy, project. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of the thing that, that launched our network. It was one of our first podcasts. Um, and William, you you dug up a doozy oh, this time boy. because I had no idea this thing existed. So Scary Tober and... in October is going to be a weekly occurrence. We have we're going to do a whole bunch of failed horror pilots, and part of the inspiration for that is what we have dragged up from, well, the dregs, I suppose. <laughs> We've dredged up the dregs. Yes, dredged dredged up. Great, the, word the bottom of that for. barrel. This was this was damn near lost this piece of media was uh, until relatively yeah, what, recently. What a pity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we will talk about that in a minute. Um, a lot of people know the films, or at least have heard of the films of Edward D. Wood Jr. 
And I think a large part of this nowadays is because there was a Oscar-winning Tim Burton movie that was a biopic called, fittingly enough, Ed Wood. And Ed Wood was, in the film, portrayed as a, like, plucky, perpetually positive cinema enthusiast who would do anything it took to make independent movies, horror movies almost exclusively. Uh, yeah. Even though, and this was the great tragedy of Ed Wood, according to that film, uh, he had no talent whatsoever. Uh, I I am very fond of Ed Wood. And I was, the movie or the guy? Uh, uh, both. I, I like the movie and I like the guy. Um, because he was a peculiar man. His movies are pretty terrible, but they're terrible in a very odd kind of a way. Ed Wood is an auteur. He had a voice, a very distinct, terrible voice. <laughs> um, when uh, Tim Burton's movie came out, actually, just prior to when uh, Tim Burton's movie came out, there was this big wave of Ed Wood media that kind of leaked out into the pop culture firmament. And there were uh, VHS box sets of his works. Uh, there was a documentary made about him. Uh, his, the book that the film was based on, it's called Nightmare of Ecstasy, uh, was put, I think it was put back in print or maybe it was just published. I don't um, think the movie was specifically and, based on that, but it was part of the research materials anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is credited uh, oh, okay. by the screenwriters. Okay. Uh but yeah, through all of this, uh, sort of this reputation that Ed Wood always held started to come to the surface. And um, the Golden Turkey Awards mm. uh, was this big institution for a long time. People don't really talk about the Golden Turkeys anymore. They've been supplanted by the Golden Raspberries these days. Yeah. But uh, it, it was just a book um, written by one of the Medveds. Uh, I forgot which one. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, it was a, a, just a litany of the worst movies ever made. Yeah. And in this book, Ed Wood was declared to be the worst filmmaker of all time. And his film, Plan 9 from Outer Space in particular, was targeted. Yeah. I, think, uh, I think that movie was literally that, called the worst movie of all time in that book. Yeah, and yeah. that movie and Ed Wood's name kind of leaked into this sort of legendary cult status and uh you know late night screenings of plan nine from outer space started to show up in sort of the midnight circus and circuit in the like the the late 80s and early 90s mm -hmm. and it was into that that uh tim burton's film finally came out and it was into that i was a teenager during that time mm -hmm. so i was started to absorb all of this sort of cult appeal of ed wood and i found his films to be very appealing, if not sometimes completely unwatchable. Well, he's um, got a certain baseline incompetence that comes with a lot of his work. He doesn't see... He's very passionate about the stories that he tells, but his style seems very uh, limited to whatever I can get away with. Like, he'll do, like, a lot of voiceover, a lot of over-exposition, mm -hmm. a lot of very bland, generic shots. Yeah, um, yeah. The thing about, I think one of the reasons why Ed Wood, he was declared the worst filmmaker of all time, I think partly because, you know, his movies are very, very, you know, silly and ridiculous and largely unintentionally. Um, but I think the reason why people didn't just say, oh, his movies are bad and forget about them. Uh, and the reason why his legendary badness, and I use air quotes as a filmmaker, uh, led to such a bizarre, I think initially ironic and then eventually sincere cult popularity, um, 
is is twofold. And one, you hit the nail on the head. He has a particular style. There's a lot of really generic, crappy genre films from the 50s and 60s when Ed Wood was operating in earnest um, that are just totally forgettable, mind-numbing pablum. And Ed Wood would try to, like, put in florid dialogue that had a kind of a poetry to it with a lot of like word repetition. And it was often very laughable, but it was distinct and you could sort of wrap your head around that. And I think that's a big part of it. I think the other reason is that a lot of his movies, you know, there's a lot of bad movies that are bad because they are um, an assault on the senses. They are offensive in some way, mm. uh, sometimes just because they're simply violent, sometimes because they are puerile. Uh, and it's hard to recommend those bad movies, whereas a lot of Ed Wood's movies have a certain innocence to them. They're very childlike in the way that they approach yeah. things like monsters and mad scientists. And I think that there is a certain naivete that we see when we see an Ed Wood project that I think perhaps we look at his work, and I think it's particularly clear in a film like Glenn or Glenda, which is actually a very serious film about uh, queer identity in the 1950s. Uh, Ed Wood, uh, I believe he referred to himself as a transvestite, if that would be the word he would use today. It's hard to say. Terminology has changed dramatically, and uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, spectrum of, of uh, gender identity uh, has, yeah, uh, you know, we understand a lot more about that now than they did in the 1950s. But you watch Glenn or Glenda, which again is largely incompetent in large, a lot of the ways that it is presented, but it's also very sincere and it's actually making great attempts to be as progressive as humanly possible within the time period and using the terminology and the information that Ed Wood had at the time. So yeah, yeah. you look at an Ed Wood film and it feels like, even if it's a monster movie, it feels like you're watching someone who can't help but put something personal in it. And we feel a connection, I think, between ourselves and this filmmaker, mm -hmm. however laughably inept his actual filmmaking prowess may be. And I think that is something well, very, very powerful in a weird way. Uh, well, uh, uh, there's a lot of people who latch on to Ed Wood's sincerity, just his, his desire to be an artist, his need to put his work on the screen and it's pretty clear that Ed Wood himself wasn't really thinking his own work through that much. Mm -hmm. He wasn't even proofreading. <laughs> uh, he was just sort of... He was just sort of like following this weird... Uh, this weird kind of surrealist impulse. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a big part of the early surrealist movement uh, when like the, the artistic movement was just being founded with something called automatic writing. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to... I was thinking about that, yeah. Uh, try, try to write words or a poem while thinking as little as possible. Like, just sort of have words spill out of you. Don't worry about sentence structure or making a poem don't, or anything. Don't, don't correct don't concentrate yourself. On it. Just let it fly out. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's fine. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the idea is to essentially, like, bypass your cognitive thought processes and get straight into what's, like, in the middle of your brain, the chewy center, yeah. the thing that is unprotected. Uh, and that would create surreal art. Uh, and I feel that way about Ed Wood. Yeah. He is just sort of reaching into his brain, but his brain contains this weird bullion base of all the monster movies he watched when he was a little kid and all these strange, uh, very adolescent impulses. Uh, 
he made movies in the 1950s. And, you know, imagine if he had like grown up like in the 80s, this would be sort of this big mixture of all of the pop culture he had absorbed. Uh, it's the same sort of thing, but he was watching monster movies yeah. like, you know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula and that kind of thing. And he was also mixing it in with uh, his own quite frankly, his own horny impulses. Yes. He's a very sexual filmmaker. Yes, he, he made uh, he made erotica. And uh, so there's a lot of things about, in Glenn or Glenda, there's a lot of things about gender identity. There's a lot of exploration of kink. He called himself a transvestite, and I think a lot of his impulses toward cross-dressing was uh, sexual in nature. Um, but, you know, he, he never said that out loud. This is just me postulating. It's difficult to say what was in uh, Ed Wood's head. Mm-hmm. We saw it so unguarded yeah. that it's so it becomes difficult to analyze after a while. Yeah, it's, it, and, you're right. It's, it's like finding someone's automatic writing, someone's like psychological test after the fact. And you're just it's so tempting to try to piece it together. It's so tempting yeah. to try to like you feel like I feel like I could get to know. Edward D. Wood Jr. just by watching his movies. And to some extent, maybe you can. I think the more of yourself you put in your work, the more decisions you allow yourself to make, especially in... Like, I think it's it's relatively easy to do in an artwork that is maybe done entirely by you, your writing, your painting, your music. Uh, but in a collaborative medium like film, so much of the personal, the deeply personal, uh, unguarded, uh, almost embarrassing honesty whether we it's conscious or subconscious often gets filtered through the collaborative process and even again even in a small production even something that is incorporated you're still working with other people your words are being put into the mouths of actors who are putting their own spin on it who might not look like how you imagine they would look the the scene that you imagine in your head it doesn't necessarily represent where you're going to be able to film it and compromises keep getting added after the fact. You edit it for pacing. You cut out a line you loved. And then eventually mm-hmm. it's not quite as confessional as maybe it would have been in your very first draft. And yet that's kind of the beauty of Ed Wood's work is that every movie feels like a rough draft. Yeah. Which is like weirdly a compliment. It feels weirdly, like a rough draft. It's yeah. weirdly a compliment, though. It, just, it feels so naked. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, and that that yeah. makes it really fascinating. And but at the same time, I mean, there, there's no two ways of, of putting it. The movies are pretty unilaterally terrible in yeah. terms of traditional structure, acting, uh, editing, light. Like, there's just a, a base level incompetence that makes them uh, un. It makes it really fascinating. But the terribleness mm-hmm. kind of highlights Edward's personality. If these were competently made, we'd kind of accept the reality that Edward is trying to present to us. We're unable to accept the realities presenting to us because it's not any kind of recognizable reality. We're too distracted by the incompetence of it all, by the weird acting, by the, the unbelievably strange dialogue he's written. So it, it's kind of pushing us out and pulling us in uh, to Ed Wood. Um, we've said this bef- on plenty of podcasts before, but one of the most fascinating things about watching just really bad movies, and you and I have a lot of experience doing it. We've watched a lot of Mystery Science Theater. We also are just explorers of the cinematic form, and we love to find garbage. Yeah. Uh, but um, when the film is not engaging with you, uh, sort of the, the the new narrative begins to form in that you're trying to piece together not the story of the movie, but the filmmaker's intentions. And 
it the movie becomes a story as to how the filmmaker could have possibly thought what I'm seeing right now could possibly have been entertaining. And that can be a really fascinating uh, experience, a really kind of eye-opening experience in a lot of ways. And when you finally get to a story that interests you, or just a, or more often an intriguing mystery as to who this person was, you found something really special. Yeah. Ed Wood is definitely that way. Um, robot Monster is another one of those. Oh movies. yeah, I love Robot uh, Monster. That, pieces. That's an excellent. I love I love Robot Monster, and that is a strange, weirdly sad movie. Yeah. I will I will um, completely I will completely go to bat for Robot Monster. I actually think, in perhaps a highly unusual way, Robot Monster is a legitimately very good film. <laughs> It's so surreal and wonderful. In, in and its own way, yeah. It's it's very confidently what it is. It doesn't yeah, feel like they wanted to do a lot more. It feels like they were able yeah, to accomplish what was on the page. Kudos to them. Made, made by a filmmaker named uh, Phil Tucker, and yeah. yeah, he's not as celebrated as as Ed Wood. No, but, no, but it's it's it's. It, for, but Robot Monster is a, is a stone cold classic. It's way more entertaining than almost any Ed Wood movie, except maybe Glitter Glenda and. It has no plan. Nine. I like plan nine. I, I'll watch I, plan I nine. wish it was more interesting. I really do. I actually find it a bit of a snore, <laughs> right. uh, but uh, robot monster has one of the most indelible images. I think in all of cult cinema and all of horror mm. and sci-fi cinema. And that is the title character, the robot monster. The ro- ro- Roman, Roman is the character's name. And the design is so absurd and yet so weirdly perfect that I think it's burned into your brain the second you see it. Imagine, if you will, if you've never seen the movie, a person in a full-body ape costume. Yeah, like a gorilla outfit. Yeah. You know, hairy, bare chest, really giant. Except, instead of an ape mask, they're wearing a diver's helmet. <laughs> With antenna. Like, like a really, like an old-timey, like, Buster Keaton movie diver's like a, helmet. And it's got mm. big antennae on it, because it's from space. Perfect. Absolutely perfect in its imperfection. Like, you just, you can't beat, how do you improve that? You don't. You can't fix that. That's as good as it's ever going to get. And there are some people who have tried to uh, kind of recapture the Ed Wood magic Mm. after the fact. And there's only been one filmmaker who's been able to do that, and that's Larry Blamere, who did... uh, the Lost Skeleton of Cadaver. He's the only filmmaker I've met, the only who really kind of understands the language of terrible B-movies. Well, Larry Blamere, who wrote, he, wrote, he did The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver. He did a sequel to that, mm. which wasn't as funny. He did one that's pretty good called Dark and Stormy Night, which is sort of a parody of like the old Dark House movies where people get trapped in a house in the middle of a thunderstorm and people start dying. Um his masterpiece is Lost Skeleton of Cadaver. It's one of the funniest movies ever made. Yeah, and yeah. Well, I also like Trail of the Screaming Four. That's pretty that's good, pretty too. I, I, one, too. But I still think Cadaver is the... If you only see one, see Cadaver. You'll love it. Yeah, see, see the Lost Skeleton of Cadaver. But what Blamere does, and this is the, 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 master, the, the masterful artistry of Blamere, is that he is able to capture the vibe of an incompetent production but with dialogue that is only slightly too witty. Like, it's yeah. very, very well, clear it's intentionally... He's making ab- well, satires. He's making comedy right, films. Right, but it's very, so, very yeah. hard to satirize incompetence and capture the vibe of actual incompetence while you yourself are not incompetent. And 
that's a very, very tricky balance to do. And I think he gets away with it really, really well. I thought you were going to say Dave the Rock Nelson when you said that. Because <laughs> well, I haven't seen Dave the Rock Nelson. You've told me, you I told me about Dave, Dave the Rock, Rock Nelson. Nelson. Okay, Dave the Rock Nelson is an independent filmmaker from the Midwest somewhere. And he works purely in the independent realm. And he makes ultra low budget monster movies i think he's even like employed like some of like the aging members of the ed wood cast and like some of his shorts um and they are blisteringly incompetent motion pictures <laughs> they are absolutely stunning there's he did a film that's only available as like a special feature on this like low budget independent documentary uh about his work uh, but it's a special feature and you must see it. It's th like three hours long and it's called Werewolf and the Witch. Not the Werewolf and the Witch. It's Werewolf and the Witch. It opens with Dave the Rock Nelson. He shot this all on VHS, by the way, and a lot of it is overdubbed, but he didn't know how to do that. So he just like lowers the volume on the on the audio he wants to replace and then yells over it. <laughs> which is just fascinating to watch over time. Uh, it opens with him like yelling at the camera in the middle of a field. And then there's like a hard cut to him, like in slightly different place in the field. And he's yelling at the camera again. And you think it's some kind of weird experimental confrontational thing until you realize he's playing multiple characters. <laughs> and it does, it's oh it's not God. clear at all. There are scenes where he's like standing in front of a mirror, shirtless, like, preening at himself proud of how muscular he is yelling things like because he called himself Dave the Rock Nelson the, yelling things like the rock's hardcore like it's very weirdly <laughs> deeply personal halfway through the movie he meets the witch and they like hang out in like what's clearly the basement of his house and it's just him rattling off his real life enemies list like critics who were mean to his work and the witch says yes bad things will happen to them too and this goes on for a long time absolutely riveting candid psychological cinema and we got to bring this back to the actual reason why we're here because normally by this point we've like had a clip and we've talked about the actual thing itself but it's really important i think when we talk about the films of, of edward that we talk about the way that we modern audiences engage with edward and i think this particular pilot that he made, it's a failed pilot for what would have been uh, apparently a horror anthology. Very low budget, very Ed Wood. It is extremely tempting to view this through the lens of Ed Wood's own personal psychology. So let's talk about Final Curtain! After hours in the theater, when the cast and crew have gone, long after the last of the audience has left, a new world appears. That of the spirit and the unseen. Ever since I had taken the starring role as the vampire and had entered this theater, I knew some unseen object was beckoning me. It was somewhere in this theater. I know I must find that object. Even though I don't know what it is I seek, I also know I fear I will find that object. 
This night, the calling is stronger than it had ever been before. Ooh. Let me explain what Final Curtain is. <laughs> well, it's it certainly is. It's not many things. <laughs> uh, it's it, not. It, uh, it's not intriguing. It's, it's not, not scary. It's <laughs> not. It's not uh, paced well. Mm. It's not um, edited well. It's not, it's not, really a, it's not about act, anything. It's not act. I would argue it's weirdly about a lot, actually, well, but mm. by accident. <laughs> because the actual movie itself, or rather, again, this was supposed to be a pilot. Uh, the idea was Ed Wood wanted to create a pilot episode for a horror anthology series, which, uh, you know, we, the heyday of that as we think of it now would be like the early 1960s with TV shows like The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. And those are the shows that are best remembered today. But anthology television was huge in the 50s. Oh, yeah. There was yeah. a lot of different well, like playhouses uh, and like various theaters and everything. And sometimes yeah, they would have a theme, up, uh, sometimes they wouldn't. And they were always named after their sponsor, like, yeah. you know, craft theater and that kind yeah. of thing. Um, in the, anthology TV predates serialized TV, I think. Uh, I mean... TV was a whole uh, bunch of experiments, basically, yeah, for a long uh, time. So yeah, in the yeah. 1950s, because they were yeah. filming a lot of plays and having that be yeah. sort of like this anthology format. We'll get big stars, they'll star in like one play of the week, and then they'll do one of those every week. And a lot of TV was, was live as well, so getting like mm. one-act plays from actors who were used to doing that sort of thing made a lot of sense. Uh, and uh, yeah, the idea of, and again, the idea of like a weekly show that was horror-centric that was also radio. You would get like, um, was it like the whistler? It was like this guy who would come in and he had like a spooky whistle and then he'd tell you a story. Uh, Arch Obler came yeah. from this realm. Uh, Arch Obler is one of my favorite early horror sci-fi storytellers. Um, <laughs> he's, he's a weirdly important feature filmmaker actually because he directed what is considered the first 3D film, uh, Buona Devil. Okay. Um, he also did a movie I really, really love starring Hans Conrad called The Twonky, which is about like a stuffy it's professor insane. who's left home alone with a television set while his wife is away, and he hates the television set, and he finds out the TVs were created by aliens to take over the Earth. Yes. And it's really fun. I haven't seen The Twonky. Yeah. I've only heard the stories. You can see, you can hear a lot of Arch Obler's like early radio stories, though. Uh, like Some of them don't exist anymore. A lot of them do. There's one that's really notorious and was apparently like considered like one of the scariest ever made. Uh, and it's all about, what, what, I think it might just be called like chicken heart or something, but basically like scientists finds a way to like keep like a chicken heart growing and beating. Okay. Bump, bump, bump. And, it'll, and it keeps growing bump, bump. and it will never stop growing until it like literally like destroys the world. And it's all just this sound effect that keeps building and looming and looming and looming. Uh, quite legendary actually. Um, so Edward would have wanted to like enter into this realm. Edward considered himself something of a master of horror. Mm. Uh, the uh, the short film or pilot that uh, became Final Curtain uh, was actually like he'd already made quite a few movies by that point in his career. Well, this was fifty seven, mm -hmm. so this is prior to Plan Nine. Uh, it would be the same yeah. year as Plan Nine actually. Plan Nine oh, actually yeah. premiered on March fifteenth, nineteen fifty seven. This this episode, in fact, uh, the the main character, the only character, uh, was originally like intended for Bella Lugosi. Of course, Lugosi died. He never did it. Uh, but by this point, he had already made uh, Bride of the Monster, which is one of his more famous films. He had already done this like kind of like um, juvenile delinquent film called The Violent Years, 
Uh, he made a film called Jailbait. He'd already done a, another failed pilot, actually, which is something we've always intended to do, uh, called Crossroad Avenger, The Adventures of the Tucson Kid, which was Ed Wood doing a Western. Hmm. Weird. Uh, Everybody had had their hand in Westerns eventually. Oh, yeah, and he, yeah. And, he, and he toyed around with it. But, like, we usually think of Ed Wood as a horror-slash-exploitation filmmaker, and the, the idea of him just doing a Western feels almost quaint. Hmm. Um... So yeah, he was like, okay, I'll do a, a one scary story every single week. And the idea of a pilot is that you make a pilot to show people how good the show will be. And they'll be like, oh wow, this is really good. And it's we early. want to see more of this. And we think audiences will want to tune in next week to see more of this because, stick with me here, it's good. Good, and I think that's where Ed Wood kind of kind of <laughs> fell a little short here. I think that's where Ed Wood kind of kind as, of lost as, the, lost as, the plot. As I said, I, I really admire Ed Wood, but did he make good movies? No, no, um, not really. And uh, yeah, th- this is totally somebody has keys to the theater mm-hmm. you know, after hours like sneaking in and shooting when nobody's looking yeah it takes kind place, of vibe it takes place uh, in a, in a theater like a live mm-hmm. theater not a movie theater uh and i love like all like he like shoots like all of these like still shots of like the theater after hours you know mm-hmm. like there's the play there's the marquee one Ooh. says free parking and i'm like ooh, free parking finally something to excite me and and he show and then he shows some more of those static <laughs> establishing shots and more of those static establishing shots in fact it's almost exclusively establishing shots of the theater and then occasionally after a while occasionally we cut to a guy and he's, uh, an actor, I think? He's an actor. If you recall, he is an actor. They say at the beginning, uh, he was in a play about a vampire. He played the vampire. And he's kind of wearing, like, kind of like a tuxedo. And again, this would have been the character Bela Lugosi would have played. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's the last night of the play. The play has ended. And he says, uh, something has. there's something in this theater, some object in this theater that has compelled me. To find it. And now that everyone has gone and no one is here and no one will notice that Ed Wood is shooting a film without a permit, I will search for this in about 20 minutes. And until then, I will mostly look off camera and think circularly. Because it's just this guy thinking about why he's thinking about things. He's like, a board creaks off to the side. This is, by the way, all non-sync sound, mm. all voiceover. All, all voiceover, completely dubbed. So, like, the, the voiceover says, a board creaks somewhere in the theater. And the actor goes, oh. <laughs> But then he says, and this is perfect Edward dialogue. This is Edward to a, to a, to a team. Mm. A board creaks somewhere in the theater. Was it just a board? <laughs> Maybe, Ed. I, I can't really say. Um, hmm. I'm trying to. Like, you write down I, I wrote down a few, of these, a few of these, like, really, really choice. Hmm. Um, he, he, he was very a big gust on... of, oh, here's one. A gust of wind pours through my dressing room window. Is it the wind? <laughs> yes, Ed. 
yes, it probably well, the, is. The, the, at that point in in the show, in the, uh, yeah. the the actor is sort of pondering sort of the nature of reality. Things are sort of unraveling as he narrates. Like he's clearly like going mad in the close-ups of the actor. He's really nervous and kind of sweaty. Uh, I'm I'm guessing that mm-hmm. Ed Wood probably read Turn of the Screw. If you've mm. ever read the, the Henry James novel, tell people about it. Uh, it's a it's a ghost story, but uh, you know it's about a fellow in in a haunted house. But it's not like full of mayhem. It's all about sort of the mounting dread yeah. that the character is experiencing. And I remember reading that and uh, encountering like maybe a four page passage where he's just standing in front of a doorknob, working up the courage to grab it, and it's yeah. just sort of like all of the thoughts going through his head, and you know. The, his hand passing through the darkness as he wraps his finger. Like, it's all very trying mm. to get the tension up rather than explain, you know, What's actually, events, something actually you know. happening. Yeah, oh, yeah exactly. there's no... And, and then he opens it up and darkness there. Nothing so what more. you're um, saying is that this is Ed Wood's most literary work. Sure. Because <laughs> that's what he's doing here. He's, yeah. he's building, he's trying to build mood and tension and the supernatural out of literally nothing mm. nothing happening not even stuff like happening off ca- like stuff happens like off camera a little mm. like a cat cries yeah like a cat goes Meow. we never see that cat by the way but we, we can't okay. afford a cat but it's yeah, like you have one actor and you have yeah. one night yeah you can edit around that you can have like the actor mm. be another character cut yeah. back and forth between the same actor you like shoot of. monster scenes or something yeah uh have him have a a monologue where he actually speaks out loud having a conversation with himself uh the cat i brought some cat dialogue down here why do i listen to a cat it is outside (laughs) i only want to know the sounds from within he's annoyed at himself because he's hearing things outside the theater when Mm. what he's interested in is is the theater and looking for something inside the theater Yes, and he'll be doing this for... For about 20 minutes. About 20 minutes. It's 22 minutes long, by the way. The, the it first, happens right at the end. The first thing that happens is the last thing that happens. Right. My God. So we're just sitting here with this guy. Uh, the actor, by the way, hold on, I want to get their uh, name it's right. D- Duke Moore. Uh, Duke Moore. Duke Moore. Uh, doing his best. I'm going to give Duke Moore a little credit here. He's clearly being yelled at by Ed Wood off camera it's to just, give yeah, reactions. He's, and, he's being directed yeah. live. It's like, yeah, you're scared, you heard something, you yeah. know, whatever it is. And and some, uh, I, I wonder if Ed Wood even knew what he was going to say. Probably not. I don't he's know. just sort of like improvising a little. Yeah. It's, it's improvisational directing. Yeah. And then like with the script added later. Um, it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all topsy-turvy. Yeah, it's uh, all topsy turvy. It, um, and, and Duke Moore is not the actor narrating. No, it's it's an, another one of Ed Wood's friends. His name is Dudley Manlove. Uh, the uh, the same thing happened uh, to du- uh, Dudley Manlove. You probably know is the guy who said, "Your stupid minds, stupid, stupid." In Plan Nine from Outer Space, uh, Bill, Bill Murray played him in the. Uh, That's right. In the Ed Wood movie. Um, no, uh, what didn't he? He didn't play that character. Oh, I thought he did. No, he played Bunny Breckenridge. Oh, you're yeah. right. You're right. That's he, played, what he, he played the the alien, uh, the like the alien lord, the alien leader, whoever it was. No, no, uh, you're right. I, you know what? I actually mm-hmm. remembered Bill Murray correctly. I remember the characters in Plan Nine wrong. Oh, I yeah, remember yeah. that guy giving that speech. That's no, that's no, on was, me. No, yeah, that's that. on me. That's on me. Um, What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. The thing about 
the majority of this movie and how we cut to a shot of an empty theater and then a shot of Duke Moore kind of trying to look scared or like being distracted or thinking Mm -hmm. to himself. And then we cut to another part of, again, empty theater. Is that what we're really watching, and we're going to be generous here, uh, is an editing exercise. It's it's uh, putting putting the Kuleshov effect to the test. Oh yes, <laughs> and and this might be the first film I've ever seen fail the Kuleshov attempt mm. uh, uh, test. The Kuleshov test, by the way, if you if you're unfamiliar with it's the term, the Kuleshov effect. Oh, sorry, Kuleshov a... effect. You, you messed me up with the whole test thing. Sorry. Uh, the Kuleshov effect is. Uh, I love early, early, early film history because a lot of the things that we take for granted hadn't been invented yet. Mm-hmm. And people like were still able to come up with names for it. Like, the idea that if you cut to somebody's face and you're like looking off camera and then you cut to something else, it looks like that person is looking at that thing. Mm. There was a time when that hadn't been invented yet. And someone was like, Ooh, what if uh, would that work? And we just take that for granted. Now that's like the basis of a lot of editing. Which is, yeah. Just what editing is. Um, but specifically, and I think it, in, yeah. Um, was it the, the editor, I think who invented this is it's mm. named like the Kulish office named after the editor. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was a I shot of a, the, it was a shot show. of a man. Yeah. Uh, with sort of a Lev Kuleshov. Lev Kuleshov. And it was a Russian filmmaker. Uh, and he has sort of a, a, an inscrutable expression. The idea is he was to, kind of directed to be as blank-faced as possible. Mm. And then you cut to that shot of him, and then you would cut to the shot of some delicious food. It was, it was and the, soup, I think. And the, and the audience would think, oh, he's hungry. Mm. And then it would cut to a shot of, like, a, a dead coffin. A coffin. Yeah. And then, oh, he's sad. And the idea is, the Kuleshov effect is the audience doing that work. Mm. The audience making a connection where technically there was none. On set, he wasn't looking at that. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about it in the abstract, it's kind of weird that our brains can do that. Mm-hmm. That our brains make that connection. That like, it's, it's, like the fir- it's like the first time someone points out that like... It's like not, uh, not free association. Unfree yeah. association. Uh, if you ever read... Um, it's a book that I considered... Uh, parts of it I think aren't don't ring true, but most of it's really, really great. And I think it's a great sort of inroad to visual storytelling, whether it be film or mm-hmm. comics, is Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Yeah. And he talks a lot about how, uh, you know, the idea of us projecting ourselves into art and how, ironically, the more specific, the more photo-accurate art is, the less we project ourselves into it because it stops looking like us. Like, you could draw, like, a photo-accurate picture of Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. And you would say to yourself, oh, that's Tom Cruise. Then you draw a circle with two dots and a line for a mouth, and all of a sudden, it's just a person. And I'm a yeah. person. I can see myself in that. <laughs> it, it's um, That's where we get uh, the phenomenon of the uncanny valley. Yeah. They, they talk about, uh, you know, why do certain uh, computer-generated human faces... Mm-hmm. Or robots. Lo- yeah, like, yeah, why do they look so, like, eerie to us? Mm-hmm. And if the robot looks like Hello Kitty... Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a very stylized face, you know, very kind of bare minimum. That's because our brains are actually looking for similarities. Yeah, we, we, we're more, like, interested and we actually mm-hmm. project more onto that. Whereas if they're trying to make the robot look like a person, everything about mm-hmm. that that, fall, that comes up short, no matter how subtle it is, 
Mm. We are hyper aware of it. Yeah. So it if, if it wrong. starts to look too, re- too realistic but not real enough, yeah. we're not focusing on similarities anymore. We're looking at differences. Yeah. And that's the uncanny valley. Yeah. There's there's a line where uh, you you've crossed a level of animation. Uh, realism. Right. So my point is that Ed Wood is just as brilliant as Lev Kuleshov, except, because uh, the thing is, is that you have to remember that an experiment doesn't have to work to be useful or important. Uh-huh. A failed experiment still teaches us things. And in Final Curtain, where so much of the film is just cutting to Duke more, maybe reacting, and then cutting to, again, in the Kuleshov effect, you'd cut to a thing, mm-hmm. and then our brain would sort of connect those two things blank face bowl of soup perhaps he's hungry but what happens when you cut from a blank face to a blank blank and to, then to you're an, like yeah to an empty room yeah, yeah. it's like you're, you're you don't know what to do with that <laughs> it's like a mirror facing itself it's you know? it's really strange and like it should be fascinating but because it's ed wood it's really dull well i could see someone like um somebody who's trying to sort of highlight the emptiness Sure, and and sort of establish a bit of a, a, a more palpable mood. Jim Jarmusch could do right. that. Oh, uh, David I'll, Lynch could do that. I'll give you uh, this. Hmm. This movie came out four years uh-huh. before last year at Marion Bad. Yeah, I love coincidence. Could coincidence, that, yeah. I think not. Which that's another movie about a character wandering around this big uh, yeah mansion. And it's a, it's a, I think it's an empty hotel. Hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's the the idea of the last year at Marion Bad. It's people remembering the time they went to this big hotel and maybe they had an affair with a, with, with someone. Maybe they didn't, maybe they thought they did or fantasized about it. And the movie is incredibly inscrutable. (laughs) But but I love it. I I love it too. I I love it. It's Um, It's normally the kind of movie I find like obtuse and boring, but it's so fascinating. Yeah. It's also one of those, um, Film school films, oh, like yeah. you're gonna watch it in film school, you but to. but you're gonna kind of love it uh, because it yeah. it sort of deals with narrative trickery and editing and sort of how one of the main functions of film, which is to tap into our memories, mm-hmm. you know, kind of reflect a, a common experience of some kind and hope that the audience can pick up on that. Um, th- this is like. Last year at Marion worse. I was gonna say this year at Marion bad. Like, <laughs> like we're we're not distanced from it yet. We're not contemplating anything. It's just a fellow listening and being frightened of nothing in particular. Mm-hmm. And if there were some something, <laughs> anything, I was, I was trying to think of like what 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 he he would be afraid of. If there was something at all, yeah, for him to actually be afraid of, yeah. Or if he stated out loud, uh, you know, something really kind of kind of spooky, like tonight I will die. If, if he, yeah. if the here's the deal, the visuals are nothing, mm. at least until the very end, and even then they're not great. But at least something happens in it. But the visuals, like nothing is happening. This is actually would be a good time to pull out an excellent voiceover. Now, voiceover is actually really hard to do in cinema, at least to do well. Um, Voiceover is, of course, when you have you know a motion picture and you have someone off camera. Sometimes it's the voice of the protagonist uh, as they're walking around or in retrospect remembering it. This happens a lot in noir. Um, and they're commenting on the action. Mm. Perhaps they're coming from a place of they know where it ended and they're foreshadowing. Uh, perhaps they don't. 
the problem with voiceover is that it's it's one of the the elements of cinema that really challenges our relationship to that whole show don't tell thing Hmm. because a lot of voiceover runs the risk of being redundant if you describe what's just happening on screen we don't need you right now voiceover the voiceover in order to justify its existence needs to contribute something inner turmoil exposition would be fine uh humor would be acceptable as well mm. uh some sort of commentary uh this is one of the reasons why uh like harrison ford hated the theatrical cut of blade runner was because they brought him the the the, the studio thought it was uh too confusing a film uh-huh. so they had him record a voiceover for the theatrical cut uh in which he explained everything and he hated it so much that the story goes that he torpedoed it on purpose like and gave to... like a completely monotone hmm. performance just that, to ruin it. But you know, they asked for it. So they used it anyway. Yeah, I know it's fucking annoying, but I mean, that's a good, that's a good I mean, example of there, every there, single thing there, he says is happening on screen. You don't there, need any of it. It doesn't contribute. I mean, it, could only improve that dull ass movie. Oh my god, I knew we were gonna do that. <laughs> Look, you, you bring up Blade Runner, and uh-huh. I'm gonna bring up how much that movie sucks. All right, all right, fine. Maybe it was maybe I, I you know what? I stepped in it. I, I'll accept that. <laughs> you threw the doors wide open. That's true. But like, but then you watch something like I don't know, like Veronica Mars, which actually had a voiceover mm. in every episode, and every time there uh, Veronica Mars spoke in voiceover in this very again very noir, very detective kind of way. She was injecting humor. She was injecting insight. She was revealing that in this moment where a lot of things were happening, she noticed a clue that otherwise we might not have been able to key into. Mm-hmm. It's all very effective. If you want to study like voiceover working well, watch Veronica Mars, at least the pilot. Just watch it. You'll see how it works. Um, Final Curtain reveals nothing. Mm. It tells you at the start, I'm in the theater. I'm searching for something. Something is happening off camera. I'm a little scared. Now repeat that for 20 minutes. And that's what we get. And, and it's not like mounting. Like, he, mm. uh, I, I can only compare this to literature because it's just a reading is mm-hmm. what it is. This would have been a, made a great audio play, perhaps, where it's just a recitation of how I'm wandering around a theater and I hear these noises and things are really, really strange. He finally goes upstairs and you can tell Ed, Ed Wood is not so clever a filmmaker mm-hmm. that he can sort of rework the geography of this theater. Yeah, and make, make it something look, Yeah, like yeah. make it look like really kind of dark and cavernous and cut to opposite angles. And make Find it look really the right maze-like. shot to make he's, it look creepy. He, yeah. he, he doesn't think that way. He can only do it really literally. So what we're seeing is the actual geography of this building that he clearly uh, snuck into at night. That's, that's, so, that's a great way to put it. Ed Wood is a literalist uh, who's trying to describe his subconscious. Yeah, he doesn't. He can't do it. <laughs> he doesn't know how to think in these abstract terms, but he tries to write in this really florid language. Yeah, it, it it's he's just it's so confusing. <laughs> Forgive me. He's just incredibly talentless. And um, again, I I love his stuff, but it's everything part about because him it's is so unique. But yeah, everything about him is a contradiction. He's passionate for movies in a way that, like, if you heard someone who was that passionate for movies talk, you might think, oh, they must be good at it. Mm. And then you watch it and like, no, somehow they love movies so much and have learned nothing about them. Just, How did you do that? He's so eager to make it. He yeah. just sort of trips over his own feet on the way. He's so he was so <laughs> eager to find out if he could. He didn't ask if he should. <laughs> Filmmaking is not about the little details. It's about the big picture. <laughs> 
Uh, and so he wanders up a staircase. Eventually. Eventually. This is, and, you know, this yeah. is like last five minutes. Uh, yeah. There's like a cool attic door. I would love to explore this space. It looks, it looks neat. like a yeah. nice, nice old theater. It looks and, like it should be neat. Either. Yeah, but he, like the idea is this is like where the costume rooms yeah. are and the props. And he opens a door and there's mm-hmm. um, essentially uh, like one of the muses, I think. Uh, it's, like it's, a it's, God, it's like a deity. Well, he kind. describes it as a mannequin. And it's a mannequin mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be a mannequin of... Mm-hmm. Like a vampire. And the idea is it is a woman, uh, a female vampire who is dressed in like a bridal gown and has kind of like dark gothic eye makeup Mm. on. But Uh, he he comments, oh, it's a mannequin. Yeah. It's wearing a a costume that we did in a production. I thought it was like a Greek goddess of some kind. I mean, it it evokes that. But the the, the only thing we know about the play is that it was called The Vampire. Okay. um, And that he played The Vampire. And so he, he looks at, so finally there's something to look at. And um, he approaches, and he, what's he going to do? What's what's he going to do? Is he going to kiss this mannequin? Is he going to be, f- be afraid of this mannequin? Uh, in true Ed Wood fashion, uh, he starts fondling the clothing. He starts fondling the dress. That's what he uh, is doing here. Ed, Ed Wood had a, admittedly had a fetish for women's clothing. Well, not even a fetish. Um, he, he called. He was a again. Tra- he called himself a transvestite. Whether or not he would call himself that now, that the yeah. terminology that we have in our I, understanding I, of sexual identity, who can say? From what I understand, um, it wasn't sort of like gender exploration. It was a fetish for him. Uh, again, but yeah, it's hard to say. Um, hard, hard to say. But he yeah. he did. Um, he did like soft clothing, like soft clothing made for women, and mm-hmm. yeah. So, in most of his uh, most of his movies, there's going to be a, a scene where somebody's touching clothes, and often they were wearing angora. Anyway, so Angu- while yeah, while big, Duke big Moore is angora. while Duke Moore is fondling this dress, uh, he says inward or the voiceover says inwardly, "I know I am smiling, enjoying this sensation." <laughs> he also says something about, "I want to look at where the moonlight hits the floor." Um, <laughs> and, that, oh, and, I, and then there's the big twist ending. Oh yeah, well the big twist ending is like as he's leaving, uh, the mannequin who was very clearly an actress the entire time, yeah, uh, like smiles, and it's supposed to be like, had Lajete come out yet? La, no, Lajete was he the 60s. Predicted yeah. Lajete too. How did he do that? We've been seeing all of these like still images, and now here's a moving one that isn't we didn't expect to, or at least theoretically we shouldn't have. It's very obvious. It's not a it's yeah. Not Sixty-two is Lajete. Yeah, yeah. So again, he 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 lapped Lajete. He lapped last year. He lapsed year at Marion Bad. Um, well, Lajete. <laughs> Put that on a T-shirt, <laughs> and then and then like you know she's like ah, and he's like oh no, something happened, and then he runs into the other room, and in the other room there's a coffin. It's a box. It's, it's, it's clearly not a coffin. It's, it's like the prop coffin you made in high school. It looks. It's like, not even coffin shaped. It's no. It looks rectangle. like a rectangular box where you'd probably put like disused pieces of cloth after you're done with them in costume class. Um, and he's like oh look. A coffin. I'd better go inside that. And so he enters. I mean, look. That's the end. Okay? I think the idea 
that Edward was probably conscious of when he was making this was here's a guy he was in a vampire thing would have been played by Bella Lugosi probably would have added a lot of heft just by mm. association yeah but he's he's the star of a vamp he plays a vampire in a vampire play the vampire play is over his job is over maybe his career is over he's an older man he doesn't know what to do with himself he wanders the empty theater has a brief moment of gay panic <laughs> and then dies i guess but really but considering that the only thing that happens is that weird moment of gay panic hmm. it really does feel like what he was uncertain of was his identity or their identity who can say uh and then after you know fondling women's clothing and then being discomforted by you know sort of the embodiment of that clothing being welcoming to him he runs into the closet and then it's over. Like it's really hard to take to not take that away. That's what we're watching right here. It's fascinating. Uh, it's fascinating. That, 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 is a, that, that is a fascinating read. Uh, the, the, uh, d- discovers something about himself and, and immediately goes into a literal closet, like yeah. in a box. That's all uh, that happens. It's, uh, I mean, whatever. Here's what I think Edward is actually like getting at. Uh, you know, he, he's interested in actors, vampire actors, Bela Lugosi. Uh, and it's about a character who, an actor who became so, uh, enamored of the part or was Mm -hmm. just so wrapped up in sort of the spookiness of playing that role that he was unable to stop being that role. It was almost like Uh, a Stendhal syndrome kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit. You lost yourself in a work of art. Yeah, you you see, you know, see this other vampire, I, I, oh, well, I guess I must be the vampire. And, you know, what I... There's a story there. There's a story there. I I would love... Forgive me for this, but I would love to see a similar short... In the hands of Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> Again, he's that he's, level he's, of he's greatness. That, yeah, he's, he's re- <laughs> that level. Because Ingmar Bergman also worked in theater. Could uh-huh. have easily written a short about an actor very in in a much more um, sort of nostalgic kind of way, wandering sure. around a theater and like touching all of the you know the, the, the production was here. It was very magical, and Bergman would have been able to sort of bring out that theatrical magic. Yeah. Um, Ed Wood wishes uh like yes. like that that he was so involved in theater that he could kind of lose himself and he did plays so he, did. he knew theater he did plays, yeah but he was bad at that too no, uh, yeah, yeah. uh he uh but you know bergman would have had sort of maybe an older actor he knew that he was at the end of his life maybe even like would have implied throughout actually i the diagnosis came through yeah, like like he had something. something yeah and uh and it would be about sort of added some weight like this is sort of his last act on this planet i i'm such ina- so enamored of the stage that i'm gonna go here or i'm gonna wait after hours mm. and i'm just gonna wait it out I'm, I'm gonna die within a matter of hours and i'm just gonna wait it out and sort of in- enjoy myself mm. um but as I wander around, I realize this is just an empty room, and like the, maybe there's a little bit of em- emotional ambivalence. He can't really put together how he feels about this. Oh, and gosh, I actually have some bad memories of this place. And you know what? What's going to be on the other side? Do I meet the you know deities of theater, or do or is it just complete emptiness on the other yeah. side? And uh, and then you know finally it's like, and how playful? You know what? I'm going to get in the coffin. That's going to be fun. And <laughs> and then and then he dies. Like. 
That's a fine short. You isn't just it? described yeah. something that could be very good, yeah, a so, little, perhaps a little dry, but very good. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. a little dry, but you know, make it a yeah. short. It's like fifteen yeah, yeah, minutes, yeah, fifteen I, twenty minutes yeah, tops. It all depends know. on the hype I, I execute. Yeah, you, it, yeah. You, you get you know, um, uh, is it Erland Josephson? Um, sure. <laughs> you could be making up a name right now. You know Bergman way better than I do. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. you've seen some Bergman films. I've seen a few yeah. Bergman films, but I don't know the casts as well as you do. Mm. I, I couldn't tell you who his usual people are. Mm. Um, yeah, er- Erland Josephson was yeah. uh, um, died kind of recently too. Oh, okay. uh, I, I I interviewed well, uh, like 2010s, but you know, lived a long time. I, I interviewed Peter Stormare once, uh-huh. and P- apparently Peter Stormare when he was like an up and comer knew Bergman, and. I forget how it came up, but he was like, do you, do you know what Bergman's like favorite movie was? And I was like, I don't, Peter Stormare. Mm-hmm. And he was like, The Blues Brothers. What? I would love to have watched The Blues what? Brothers with Ingmar Bergman. Apparently he liked The Blues Brothers. What? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I think it was, was, he was like, he was like working on a character and a part and everything and like, Mm. Ingmar Bergman was like asking him questions and he was like and Ingmar Bergman would return like okay. he, he would answer it as well and one of oh, yeah. what your favorite movie was and I forget what Peter Stormare said but I remember he said the Blues Brothers was Ingmar Bergman's favorite wow. film for a minute there would have been towards the end of his life but like for a minute <laughs> apparently it was the Blues Brothers we must you got Max von Sydow we, we must save the orphanage <laughs> <laughs> We are on a a very literal mission. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) B.B. Anderson describing the cop pile up. And then there was another car and it fell on the first one. And then there were three cars. Someone broke. Hey, they broke my sundial. There's a recurring joke in the Blues Brothers. Well, they have the most epic car crash ever, and at the end, you cut inside the car and someone's just upset that their watch broke. Like, happens like five times in the movie. Great full, movie. full fried chickens and a Coke <laughs> and some dry white toast. <laughs> Ingmar Bergman's Blues Brothers. That's a great idea. <laughs> um, so obviously the final um, curtain didn't get picked up. No, <laughs> it did not. I'm curious if he sent it anywhere. Fuck all happens who, in it. Who yeah. saw it? Who did he send it to? Who watched and, it? And here's the thing. This, this is on Tubi. You can watch this. Yeah, yeah it's, it's on Tubi. It's, it's on YouTube. It's in, like I think most of Edward's stuff yeah. is in public domain, if not all of it. Uh, and yeah. and this one was like uh, Paul Marco is one of mm-hmm. uh, one of his, Edward's his regulars, players, yeah. one of his stock players. Yeah, I think it was his son. Uh, I think nephew actually. Oh, his nephew. Okay, let me look. I think um, it was the great nephew of Paul Marco. The great nephew of Paul. Marco. Yeah, had, okay. had uh, it, this movie was considered lost. Apparently, Edward was quite fond of it. Um, and it was considered lost. He'd reused some of the footage for a movie he made in 1959 called Night of the Ghouls. Uh, I actually haven't seen Night of the Ghouls, so I don't know exactly what they used. But apparently he, you know, ever uh, ever the opportunist, he found a use for the footage. Uh, and then, yeah, this was discovered. This ended up playing at the Slamdance Film Festival in 2012. Slam Dance, if you don't know what it is, uh, Slam Dance is a film festival that happens concurrently with the Sundance Film Festival. And the idea is... It's a little more it, rock and roll. Though, well, yeah. it's for the stuff Sundance rejected. Mm. And the fact that there have been really good movies that came out of Slam Dance kind of shoots a few holes in the Sundance ideology. Like, uh, I think Slam Dance had Six String Samurai. 
if memory serves. Uh, I, I believe you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, Slam Dance has had some, like, fun films come out. Six, six Drink Samurais. It's, oh, um, God, it's so neat. R- really, uh, it's incredibly low-budget, mm. stylish rock and roll uh, post-apocalypse movie. Yeah, imagine if uh, it's the end of the apocalypse, and instead of you're following Mad Max's adventures, you're watching a samurai sword-wielding Buddy Holly. Literally. Yeah, he has his a, name is Buddy. He looks like Buddy Holly. His name is Buddy. It looks like Buddy Holly. He wears the suit, but he's all like dusty from the, the desert. Yeah. He carries a samurai sword and a guitar, and he dreams of becoming the next Elvis. Like he's trying to get to, yeah. to Las Vegas. It's it's a neat film, and, it's, and yeah. briefly it was like one of those like cult movies. People thought, oh, this is going to be an old timer, and now of, nobody talks about it anymore. It's got a, shame. got a lot of shaggy surf rock and on the soundtrack. I um, think did, it's been. Did you ever see the Red Elvises? Uh, perform in Santa Monica. They did a lot of busking down there. I think I might have. Yeah, yeah I think I think they were Russian. Uh, yeah, they. Mm. You would have re- remembered because the the one of the guys had like bright red hair and he played a gigantic bal- like bass balalaika, like ah. this gigantic uh, Russian instrument. Oh, maybe and I they're... didn't think because that sounds okay. Yeah, they sound like the Leningrad Cowboys. No, they're Finnish. Okay, uh, even though they're called Leningrad Cowboys, yeah. they're actually a Finnish band. But um, yeah. No, th- these guys performed in Santa Monica, California, and they're in, they didn't just play on the soundtrack, they're in Six String Samurai, they show up on camera. By the way, if you love the movie The Blues Brothers, if you're like, ooh, they're talking about The Blues Brothers, and you've never seen uh, uh, Leningrad Cowboys Go America, <laughs> you're in for such a treat. Your whole weekend is about to get better. Watch Leningrad Cowboys Go, Go America. America. You so will good, thank right? me. It is so. one of the most wonderful road trip movies you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. Aki Karasmaki is uh, yeah. also look up in any interview with Aki Karasmaki. Oh, He's yeah. like the bitterest yeah. bastard. You know, I was like, but he made so what, really... what, 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 what drove you to make these movies? Movies are shit. Like, <laughs> smoking a cigarette. It's like, uh, but he made this incredibly sweet road trip yeah. movie about like a very laconic, mm-hmm. likable rock band that all have weird pompadours yeah. and learn rock music as they gradually move across America and to play that... a wedding in Mexico <laughs> and they came from Siberia <laughs> so great and they're, and they're never out of their costumes never. they were these gigantic hairdos and gigantic oh, shoes it's wonderful look like they stepped out but, of Mad Magazine the, and the manager keeps stealing all their food so they're, <laughs> they're barely staying alive like, he says we don't have enough money for food here's a turnip you all share it and then mm. he runs behind the car and eats a cheeseburger yeah. real fast <laughs> It's great. Lenin, it's so, Leningrad Cowboys Go America is great. Yeah. I think it's. I, I think it really goes back to our original point. That Ed Wood, despite his... just It, it never ceases to amaze me how incompetent his storytelling is. Like, it's just... <laughs> and then he never learned. He, he kept making never, movies and making never movies. Never got better. Like, again, some of his movies are more entertaining than others. Some of them are more functional than others. None of them are very good. Mm-hmm. But again... Through all that, we get personality. You can throw money at Brett Ratner. <laughs> you can give Brett Ratner one of the best and most influential novels of, like, mm. you know, genre novels of, like, the late 20th century. Like an adventure you, novel. No, you can give him, like, like seriously, Red Dragon. All right. One of the most influential, like, detective investigation novels. The original adaptation of Red Dragon, Manhunter, helped, uh, uh, and Red Dragon itself, helped popularize what we now consider the, like, modern procedurals. Yeah, serial killer drama. Yeah, but also, like, we're going to use, like, science to try to, like, uh, go through every single piece of it. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's not that. Uh, you can give him that material. You can give him one of the best cinematographers in the world. You can give him... Anthony Hopkins, Edward Norton, Ray Fiennes, 
and Emily, Emily Watson. Watson. And he'll make something with no personality. Because he doesn't have personality as a director. He doesn't exactly. have a style. He has nothing. It doesn't seem like he has anything to say. You can give Ed Wood the short ends of like a whole bunch of film stock and an empty theater and he'll make a shitty movie. But by God, we can get a whole conversation out of it. <laughs> by God, it feels like there's something in there that he's trying to get out. By God, we will talk about the Kuleshov mm. effect and Bergman. I didn't even get into La Jetée. What the shit? <laughs> but while you're watching it, you're going to text your friend saying, yeah. WTF is this? It is one of the longest 22 minutes I've ever seen. It's, it's interminable. Yeah. It just yeah. goes on and on. Yeah, um, it, and it's it's not even one of those things like where you could like get wasted and watch it with friends no, and have a good nothing, time. There's nothing to do with uh, it. I mean, at least with his feature films, like they're they're slowly paced and they're badly acted, but, but stuff, stuff happens. happens yeah, in them. and there's also like enough errors and strange editing things and mm-hmm. weird dialogue. They're gonna have a good time. Yeah. Uh, Plan Nine from Outer Space is still remains like the king of the B movies, mm-hmm. like uh, the the really entertaining bad movies of history. And again, um, I'll actually go to bat for Glenn or Glenda. It's actually yeah. like interestingly edited and has like real things on its mind. Mm-hmm. And it's never dull. It's never dull. That was never dull. It's, it's still quite bad, but it's never dull. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, but you know, he's, this is, this is, <laughs> I almost said this is bad, Edward. Uh, <laughs> really? really? This, this is, this is Ed Wood with like, even less resources than he usually has, which was nothing. (laughs) Uh, There's good Ed Wood and there's bad Ed Wood, and this is the the bad end of it. And the good Ed Wood is also bad Ed Wood. Um, I, I haven't seen any of his porno movies. I know oh, he I did never like, like straight up erotica. Like he did the like 60s and 70s. Goldilocks but... and the three bears, but B A R E S. Didn't he do something like that? Something like that. Well, let me, let me like see the if I can. Sinister Urge. Um, yeah, I never saw that. Hold and on, he, he showed up in the movies, and he, he was uh, he, yeah. he was a terrible alcoholic. Yeah, uh, like he he drank to excess far too much, uh, and you know the, the the last years of his life were not happy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Tim Burton was wise not to have that be part of the movie yeah. uh, and the screenwriters. They didn't. They they followed Ed Wood up until 1957, mm. and they kind of skipped over the depressing part of his life. Uh, mm. Orgy of the Dead, Orgy of also the originally dead, yeah. titled Nudie Ghoulies. Nudie Ghoulies is a better title. It, it, Orgy of the Dead is, is just a little it's, little it's, vague. It, it's not even vague. It's actually like really blunt. Yeah. Nudie Ghoulies sounds like, oh, why are they nude? I'm intrigued. Oh, I know why. I, Orgy of the Dead. It's because they're all I, I have sex. a movie uh, in, in my yeah. video collection. I, I have a whole Ted V. Michaels box set. Um, look up Ted V. Michaels, M-I-K-E-L-S. And, uh, and he just did crap. He did, you know, corpse mm-hmm. grinders. And we, uh, I have a Blood Orgy of the She-Devils. That's one of his movies. Mm-hmm. I have it on DVD, and it's rated PG, uh, which is all you really need to know about Blood Orgy of the She-Devils. There's no Blood Orgy, but that's evocative, isn't it? Yeah. You don't want to see Blood Orgy of the She-Devils. Uh, he made a uh, an outright pornographic feature called Take It Out in Trade in 1970, which mm-hmm. also said had Duke Moore in it. So, it, you know, they, 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 hug, if, they hung out. I wonder if it was a sex role or... I don't know. I honestly yeah. don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, so I haven't... 
there's there's a fair amount of Ed Wood that frankly I haven't seen. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Uh, and I'm there, mostly familiar with his early stuff. There, and there's a movie I wanted to see of his that came out in the mid '90s. Oh, was uh, it? Ed, I woke up early the day I died. Yeah, well, Ed yeah. Wood died in 1978. Yeah. Uh, but they found an old script of his in the mid '90s, and this was after Tim Burton's film had come out, so interest had been renewed yeah. in, in his work. And uh, yeah, they found an old script. They didn't change it. It was called "I Woke Up Early the Day I Died." Billy Zane and a lot of other like indie luminaries were in. Great it. title, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It starts. It's got okay. So here's the people who are in this. Ca- Holy shit! Okay, and, here's and the I've people who are in this. I've been trying to cast. see this, and it's not anywhere. You can't find this thing. Here's the. Here's the. This is the last like Ed Wood written movie. It was directed mm-hmm. by someone named Eris Leopolis. Uh, it stars Billy Zane. Yeah. Ron Perlman. Tippy Hedren, Andrew McCarthy, Will Patton, Carol Stroykin, John mm. Ritter, Karen Black, <laughs> Sandra Bernhard, Eartha Kitt, mm-hmm. Christina Ricci, oh my God, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Ugh. several of the Phoenixes like Rain and Summer, Tara Reed, Rick Schroeder, Stephen Weber. Nicolet Sheridan's in this thing. Dana Gould. Oh, of course Dana Gould. And in it. Bud Court. Oh, and, what the shit? And oh, and Milo Normi, aka Vampira. Oh, there you go. Um, that's awesome. Uh, that's that's Dana, a hell of a cast. Dana Gould yeah. was actually friends with Milo Normi. Um, to, to him, she was just the lady that lived in the next apartment. Uh-huh. Like they were neighbors, and they became good friends. And uh, he was able to probably hook her up with a gig. Yeah. Uh, and what what's the date today? Uh, uh, it's October second. As, as of this recording, we're recording this on October second. Uh, if this, if you can hear this before October tenth, and you live in Los Angeles, you should go down to Largo, which is Largo at the Coronet Theater, which is uh, here in Los Angeles. And Dana Gould is hosting, as he does every year, a live reading of the script for Plan Nine from Outer Space, ah. and it's all and it's all his comedy buddies like you know Bobcat Goldthwait's going to be there. Um, uh, Tom Kenny's pro- well, maybe not Tom Kenny's busy guy, <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah, a, a lot of uh, sort of his comedian buddies get together and they read Plan Nine from Outer Space, like they g- give a dramatic reading of the script, and that's great. The script is so odd. Yeah. It's a pretty fun experience. So if if you're into Ed Wood and you want a live Ed Wood experience, I can hype that up because I've I've been in the past and it's really yeah. a good show. Oh, that's amazing. They're not a sponsor or anything. I just wanted want, want to hype it up because it's a good show. What you're saying about Vampire reminded me of an anecdote. The first time I went to Comic Con, well, I just went for fun. I wasn't working it or anything. Um, one of the celebrities I got to meet very briefly got an autograph. Elvira. Fun. All Huge right. fan of Elvira, my God. Who's just, not a fan of Elvira? I am. Yeah, right. Just a, a national, international treasure. Earth's treasure. <laughs> um, and I took a picture with, El- with Elvira and I felt really good about myself. And then I called my parents like later. They were just like, hey, how you doing? You doing okay? Yeah. And I'm like, because I was like 18. I was, you know, oh. one of my first like trips all by myself. Uh, and uh, they was like, yeah, I met Elvira. It's like, oh, did you tell him what she said? Did, did you tell her we said hi? I'm like, oh, did they know Cassandra Peterson? You knew Cassandra Peterson? <laughs> yeah, we were neighbors. What? Oh, that's funny. How did you never bring this up? We watched that movie. How did this never come <laughs> up? What the shit? I could, I had it in. Yeah. <laughs> like, you knew my parents. Yeah. I could have said at least my parents said hi. And then she would have been like, oh, nice. And then maybe we would have chatted briefly. No, I was right. robbed. Uh, my my dad used to sing in a chorale, yeah. and he used to like fly around with the chorale and you know do international gigs yeah. or not international but like just all over the country. 
And uh, he got to fly in those big planes back in the 60s when it was really, really the jet set. Yeah, and like, literally. Uh, there was like bars you could stand at and have a, have a cocktail on the plane. What was it? Ben Oswald said, you could, get to, you could get to the airport five minutes before your flight and have a drink with the captain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I missed that. I, 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 I flew in the 80s. You could yeah. just go right up to the gate. Yeah. It, it was so much easier. It was a lot um, less security theater. They just, yeah. Uh, but... Uh, my dad told us stories. Yeah, I was traveling around. Oh, did I tell you about the time I had a cocktail with Charlton Heston? It's like having a drink with Charlton Heston on a plane. It's like, no, Dad, you had a, you had a martini with Ben Hur. My my parents have done that to me many times. Yeah. not that long ago. Actually, very very recently, actually, completely blew my mind. I forget what we were talking about. My mom loves old movies. She's one of the reasons why I love movies as much as I do. We would watch a lot of old movies together when I was like in elementary school. Uh, and uh, remember we were talking about Clint Eastwood and my mom was like, do you remember when you met Clint Eastwood? I was like, do I what now? Like, yeah, you were like a toddler and Clint Eastwood had been like, had served in the military with my dad's best friend who no longer is with us. And he was visiting my dad, my dad's friend. They happened to both live in like the same town. And like, yeah, yeah, you, you happened to be there. And Clint Eastwood like hung out with you for like half an hour and played with you when you were like a toddler. And I'm like, no, I don't remember that. I feel like you should have brought that up at some point. <laughs> My God. It's so weird. Anyway. Um, anyway, the, the question we have to answer, of course, because this is canceled too soon. Uh, now, I want you to think about this, okay? I don't want you to jump to a conclusion. All right. All right. The question is, and remember, Final Curtain was the name of the episode, not the show. The show is Portraits of Terror. Hmm. And I would have assumed that Ed Wood would have introduced a portrait. So, of course, he predicted Night Gallery as well. Why not? Was Portraits of Terror canceled too soon? Think about it. <laughs> Think about it. Do Ed Wood okay. that favor. All right. Uh, I, I'm serious consideration here. Okay. Let, let's think about what kind of a show, like a series, mm-hmm. this would have been. A weekly program, half hour show, uh-huh. anthology show. Yeah. Different scary stories every week. Yeah. Uh. I'll say this. I kind of want to see that. I want to see a series where Ed Wood fails repeatedly <laughs> to tell a scary story. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if Ed Wood would have done it every week. Maybe mm-hmm. they would have sort of rotated through directors. Mm-hmm. But if it's all like Z grade directors like Ed Wood, that would also have been kind of interesting. Oh my God. Can you? Oh, um, it's like the. Who, who did Night Train to Mungo Fine? Oh, that was uh, Coleman Francis. Yeah, imagine we got Coleman Francis to, t- to team up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what, is, what is it the opposite of Masters of Horror? <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassments to horror. Yeah. God. So are you Just saying a, it, was, it was canceled? Uh, oh, golly, no. Oh, I'm not... <laughs> I just want to see it because I'm I'm a, a, a weird evil fuck who wants to see bad things. But you know, it would have been fascinating. I think there's there's an there's a universe I think uh. in which Ed Wood pitched this to some UHF like from the movie station that had mm. delusions of grandeur okay. and they wanted to have their own series, basically, hmm. and they got Ed and Ed Wood's like, I'll do it. It's like, hmm. what's your budget? Nothing. We'll give you the film stock. Like, that's all yeah. we can do. Uh, and it was like, great, I'll make it work. And then he ends up, like, having to, like, half-ass it and, like, you know, do the voiceover live on the air or something because he ran out of time. There's a universe in which I really want to see that. I agree. But no. Yeah, no. Yeah. This was... <laughs> I 
this was not canceled. It's very bad. I want to podcast about it, but I don't mm. actually want to see it. Yeah, Does that uh, make sense? And, and we, we've talked about this before. Um, yeah. As critics, you yeah. know, when we see a movie, we want it to be very, very good. Oh. Uh, well, more than anything, mm. we just want to be able to, to have something to write. We want to have That's like a selfish an, way of putting that. Absolutely, it is, <laughs> okay. and I think this is what's going on because I. This is why uh, so many critics would say they would mm-hmm. rather see something really bad than something really boring. Mm-hmm. Um, I would rather see something really boring. I'd rather not be offended and sit through something terrible. Yeah, I'd rather be bored than offended. Right, 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 uh, right but uh, when you see something really boring or something kind of middle of the road, mm-hmm. and you sit down to write a review, those are the hardest reviews to write. Mm-hmm. That's the worst part of our job when you have to think of something to say about something that is mm-hmm. has nothing on its mind. I don't know. For me, if I there's think... something really terrible, mm-hmm. you got a lot to dig into. Yeah, you see something really great, you got a lot to dig you into. You got a lot to compliment, at least. Yeah, I I, th- I feel like those those occasions in which you just watch something that's like really mm. generic and dull, that is an opportunity to digress a lot. Yeah, that's an opportunity to talk about your day and then just sort of throw in a movie review on paragraph three. Um, you know, th- there's an opportunity there for you to stretch your muscles. Maybe I try not to do that too often, but I do. Um, I, I don't know if I if I'd say that. I think that what as a critic, yeah, I don't want to be offended and I don't want to see something painful. Yeah, obviously that's a line I don't want to cross. But if I could avoid it, what I want is something interesting. It doesn't have to be great. I'd love it if it was great. Great is better, mm-hmm. I suppose by definition. But you know. What I want is something that keeps my attention. Hmm. Admittedly, Edward doesn't do that. <laughs> he really struggles <laughs> to keep my attention. But at the end of the day, when I'm discussing his work, even though it was dull, there was a lot in it, weirdly. It's just that Ed Wood didn't know how to bring it out. Like, you can see it. It's there. And he's totally oblivious to it. I maintain that there is a very straightforward uncomplicated very queer reading of this text (laughs) that is just one of those things where it's like i remember when i was uh when i was in college and uh, i was uh, taking screenwriting that's what was my focus in film school um and you would write pages and people would come back to you and the other people in the class would give you notes and every time i wrote like a love story in it okay the note i would get is you know, all your love stories are really asexual. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll work on that. And at no point did it occur to me, oh, I'm asexual. <laughs> I'm discovering something about myself <laughs> I'm here. Fo- I was 40 when I figured that out. <laughs> like, that's how completely oblivious you can be when people are telling you to your face what your material is. I was like, holy shit. I look back on that and I'm like, I just slap myself. I'm like, how did I do that? This is a great example of that. Um, at least that's my theory. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it, was, it, it, it wasn't canceled too I, soon. I got that in college a lot, too. It's like, why, why are you always writing these, like, queer romances? And I would just say, hi. <laughs> <laughs> well, you at least like, knew yourself yeah. better. You were more self-aware. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I started, like, openly saying bisexual, like, when I was 17, 18. Oh, good for so, you. Yeah. Good for you. That's not everyone Not everyone mm. gets there. No. Um, anyway, uh, that is it for this episode of Cancel Too Soon for Scary Toba. What was that? Was it a cat? I don't want to think of cats. I want to think of 
canceled TV shows. Why was the cat going woo? <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, next time on Scary Tober, because we're coming back next week. Isn't that exciting? Uh, we're going to be doing uh, a failed pilot that got turned into a feature film, and they added like cameos by Tony Curtis and shit. Uh, the pilot was supposed to be called uh, House of Wax. Hmm. Uh, the movie uh, would end up being called Chamber of Horrors. So we're going to be watching Chamber of Horrors and sort of kind reverse of engineering how the pilot would work. These are kind of generic horror titles. I know. Oh, well, I assure you, what we have worked up for week three of Scary Tober is not a generic title at all. It is a title that makes you go, What? <laughs> And the answer to that question is yes. So stick around. But yeah, first off, we got Chamber of Horrors slash House of Wax. Next up, we have, oh boy. Uh, and I can't wait to get to all of these. So uh, thank you again, everybody, for listening. Thank you for everyone who's joined us. Uh, to everyone who always says, wins cancel too soon coming back. It's back for a month. Enjoy. Um, we, we're excited too. We love doing this. Uh, but um, yeah, feel free to uh, drop us a line if you want to talk about anything we discussed. Do you know anything about Ed Wood that maybe we don't? Uh, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And our P.O. Box, Whitney, is? Uh, send us a physical letter to uh, the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. If you want to listen to a lot of our bonus shows uh, or uh, listen to episodes like this without any ads, uh, our, email, uh, our email address, our Patreon page is patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you to all of our patrons. Without you, we couldn't do this stuff. Uh, and uh, yeah, and we're on the social medias. We're on Twitter and Blue Sky. Uh, yeah, I'm calling it Twitter. Uh, at uh, at Critic Acclaim. Mm. And I am at William Bibiani everywhere. And I'm at Whitney Seibold. I'm, I'm on Twitter, but not really. Mostly Blue um, Sky. Yeah, mostly Blue Sky these days and, and yeah. Instagram if you want yeah. to actually contact me. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, thank you everybody for listening. That is a wrap. We will see you next season. At Marion Bad. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.